Do what voice a second time, Maddie? Mm. Oh no. Flirting with the voice over here. Yeah, you are. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to a return to form with ADD Storytelling, the podcast in which we explore the myths and legends of our time, the past, the present, and the future in no particular order, and sometimes with less than perfect focus. My name's Tucker. Hi, Tucker. Hi, Maddie. What's your name? Probably Maddie. Maddie. <laughs> How are you doing today? You feel good after your break? Your little hiatus? Uh, no. But, you know, it was a necessary hiatus. Yeah. You, and it was a fine one. I mean, you're, you're out palling around and doing fun things with phallic imagery and tiny outfits. Is that generally what happens at a bachelorette party? Yeah, but my bachelorette party, we just spent seven hours trying to solve this really involved UK mystery box. And what does that entail? <laughs> and we did have wigs and glasses, but so, yeah. yeah. That's more in line with what I kind of expected and assumed. Yeah. Yeah. That's not the reason we took the whole week off, though. That's just one thing that happened. That's one, <laughs> one eclipsing event, though. Um, so what's your energy level at today? How are you feeling? You feeling lively, energetic, or are you feeling a little tuckered out? So that's what today is. It's a tuckered out episode. It is today. a tuckered out. Yeah. Do you want me to actually answer the question, or did you just want to set up your own joke? Well, do you have something interesting to answer that question with, or? No. Okay, then. Okay. <laughs> that's why I answered my own joke. We've already recapped our day together. And yeah, that's true. That's true. You did save a child, but otherwise, yeah, it's pretty middling. My God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Tucker, for your Tuckered Out episode, what is your topic today? Yeah. That's a good segue. Felt like Kevin James writing that segue. <laughs> today we're talking legendary weapons. Alright, legendary weapons. Yeah, that's cool. Did you actually forget? Is that did. a genuine question? Cursed weapons, right? Something like that. Legendary, legendary weapons. I mean cursed weapons will factor in, but it's not a it's not enough of a catch all for the topics we'll be just I think this is gonna be a topic that I might do multiple parts of because there's a lot of good shit in here. And uh, are we going with a, like Excalibur or like something more? See, we could do. I mean, there's exotic shit tons of these. Uh, in in my research, I just kept finding more that I wanted to talk about. But today, I've uh, well, narrowed it something... down to three because within the three, we already might run over time. So that's why I'm saying like I kind of want to come back to this. All right. Well, let's see if we can get two done. Within a reasonable amount of time. Oh, we're going to do everything. We're going to do it all. And you're going to sit back and enjoy every word I speak. <laughs> <laughs> do we want to start with my little abstract? Or do we all feel like we have a pretty good understanding of what constitutes a cursed or a legendary weapon? I feel like it's pretty self-explanatory. Glittery sword, you know. Yeah, anthropomorphized weapon that shows up in folklore and myth, cross cultures. Did you say anthropomorphized? Because I'm pretty yeah. sure that means like becoming a... A thing, right? Well, like something a that's non-human or inanimate with human characteristics or powers. Oh, okay. So yeah, I was thinking of Soul Eater, where the weapons are people, and they transform well, I mean, back and forth. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, like, legendary weapons or cursed weapons are just mythical implements, I would say, crossover in that Venn diagram of anthropomorphized at times. 
They have traits. They have qualities. Yes, I suppose so. Yeah. So shall we just dive right in then? Let's dive right in. I don't think we need a synopsis. All right. We're going to get the, the material. Yeah, you are. All right. Coming in hot with number one is the Spear of Destiny. Do you know what that is? The Spear of Destiny. You should know what that is. And maybe. Why? I Give me more context. Also known as the Holy Lance or the Spear of Longinus. Anything yet? Nope. Got nope. nothing. So named for after the Roman soldier who wielded it? Nothing yet? Lancelot? I don't know. Longinus? The Roman soldier Lancelot? <laughs> I heard Lancelot. Longinus? Longinus. Longinus. How is that a name? It's, it's Roman. Roman. I guess. How, how is anything a name? Well, Longinus is so weird. I guess maybe the Latin. I feel like Italian names are so cute, and then Latin well, is, names are like, ugh. Yeah, this is, be, this is before <laughs> Italy was the cute country we know it as today. It was back when it was the hardcore Roman times. Yeah, I guess so. Back before the spaghetti. <laughs> they had not wielded the power of the spaghetti in the Riccatoni yet. So, it was also known as the Spear of Longinus, Longinus being the person that wielded it. It's a legendary implement that was said to have been used to stab poor old Jesus in the tummy whilst he was in the middle of that whole crucifixion ordeal. Oh my god, so he stabbed Jesus on the cross? You don't know this? You're Catholic! I mean, the Romans are really not super involved. I mean, they're, they're really is... the only one they talk about in the Bible is Pontius Pilate and the guy that... He... But this is definitely a part of the Stations of the Cross, which, as I went to... <laughs> church with you for the first time in about 14 years last week or so you reminded me that that's usually an ordeal that y'all have to sit through no so what i was telling you was is that you were lucky that we weren't there yeah during a ceremony but you were talking about the stages of the cross and i feel like it was close approaching because it was very close to easter so we could have at any point done the stations of the cross because that's you know before he dies you know easter is when he like rolls out of the tomb yeah or whatever resurrects but uh so lazarus maybe he's not depicted on the stations the guy him being lanced in the stomach is not a thing but he the lance is usually a part of the iconography and maybe i'm wrong dear listener i mean i feel like it's catholic that it's yeah catholics are the more hardcore blood obsessed ones it's definitely a part of catholic imagery i mean i don't remember that part. You probably also blocked it out because you don't like things like this. Oh, God. And it's so boring. It's so long. I can't. Uh, All right. Speaking I got in of, trouble every bo- time I had to go to Stations of the Cross in high school. Every time. Speaking of so it. long and so boring, this is a Tuckered Out episode, so I'm going to need to get moving. Right. You got Sorry, a lot of material. Continue. Yeah, I don't know. All right. So this act was performed on the eve of the Sabbath to more or less check whether or not Jesus was done. I found that to be a funny thing I read. It's like you're checking Wait, meat. so he was already dead, and then they stabbed him in the stomach? Yeah. As so the followers of Jesus. why it's not on the stage so they, the cross, is it? They stabbed him to make sure he was done because the followers of Jesus needed to get that boy in tomb before sundown on Saturday by the end of the Sabbath. Suffice it to say, Londonist stuck the lance in and confirmed that yes, Jesus be dead. Subsequently, the relic of the Holy Lance was moved from one side of worship to another over the centuries with varying descriptions of its size and composition. The general consensus is that this piercing tip of the lance was broken off early in the first century and traveled independently of the larger form, which was being held in Constantinople before ultimately residing in France. Okay. How did, did it, like, get any special powers from being, you know, from pork in the Lord? Pork in the Lord. Wow, I love you. 
You mean Pokin? Or we? I mean, I hope you meant Pork in the Lord. You stab. Sticking it in. Sticking it. Well, sticking him. I mean, there was supposed to be a miraculous moment that occurred when the stabbing happened. When he poked it in, drew it out. Uh, blood and water flowed forth from Jesus in equal parts. It's supposed to symbolize his humanity and divinity. That so was kind of a miraculous event there when he got the pork. And I don't think that that would then reassure me that he's dead. If water and blood came out of someone? Yeah. What if he doesn't move when you stab him in the side? Yeah, I guess that's... I think that's the more of the indicator. I would be really concerned if I stabbed him and nothing came out. <sighs> I don't know what happens to your blood after you die for, like, how much time. Anyway, go ahead. Keep going. Getting distracted. It is said that the lance came into the possession of the Holy Roman Emperors in the 10th century and was kept in Prague. The winged lance was housed within Austria and used in the coronation ceremony of Charles IV and then moved from Prague to the Emperor's birthplace of Nuremberg. Did you say winged lance? Winged lance, yeah. Why is it winged? So, a winged lance is traditionally one in which the head has that kind of flare-out, like an exaggerated uh, arrowhead. Mm-hmm. That just makes it a winged lance. Okay. Unless we have a weapon nerd that's going to message us with a correction there. That would be cool. That's, yeah. I like to learn about swords and lances and things. Keep on going, I guess. <laughs> All right, so it was moved to Nuremberg, Austria, before being relocated yet again to Vienna in order to protect it from the encroaching French Revolutionary Army in the early 1800s. This is where the story comes to, as I'm sure you guessed. Hitler, who in 1918, Ah. with the collapse of the Habsburg state in Austria, the Nazi party had the relic moved once again to a bunker underneath the Nuremberg Palace. The Reich, oh wait, let me try this. The Reich? No, well, it's got the word Reich in it. The Reichskleinodian. Reichskleinodian. Okay, so sometimes Heidi Marie listens to our podcast and she speaks German. Heidi Marie. Reichskleinodian. So maybe she can correct you once she gets to this one. No, I'm pretty sure I've got it. It means the Imperial Regalia. Um, Was eventually uncovered by a member of the group now known popularly as the Monuments Men, who are a team of anthropologists, historians, scientists, you probably know the drill with that, that scoured Europe for stolen art that the Nazis had taken during their big collaborative fun war fest. I mean, at least there was a chance to recover it. At least they stole it instead of just burning everything to the ground. Well, that's a whole huge side story. Like, yeah, it was a, it's a, it's a pretty cool side quest in and of itself. Just how they found this one, they were led on many uh, wild goose chases in the process of retrieving it. The spear was then the spear and tip were reunited after a cat and mouse hunt, a la National Treasure, and were once again <laughs> moved from its resting place in Nuremberg to Austrian officials in January of 1946. Wait, wait, wait! So you're telling me Nick Cage was involved? No, it was just a Nick Cage-esque caper in order to retrieve the the pieces. I'm pretty sure Nick Cage was involved. Mm, more, most likely. This is where the spear remains to this day in the Hofburg Museum of Vienna. This said, numerous tests and examinations have been performed on the lance, and in turn dated the artifact back to the 8th century at earliest. However, there is a nail that's embedded within the braid that's laid that's said to be the nail used in one of Jesus' fun uh, stigmatas, his cool piercings. And that's said by experts to resemble a Roman nail of the first century. So it seems like, at best, this was an ancient replica of the original. But and there they was stuck also a, a nail in there? Yeah. But the, na- the nail might be genuine. 
Um, right. So, I mean, they had the nail. Yeah. They're like, this is legit a nail. And then they stuck it in that replica, like, oh, this one got fucked up. Let's stick the nail in here. It'll um, make sense in a second. But the reason we're following the historical trajectory of this particular one is because of what comes next. But there's also like four or five other, quote unquote, holy lances, sphere of destinies that have been traveling all around the world in different places and resting at holy sites that are considered the real one. Who knows where it is? But mm, okay, so there's a debate on which one's the real one. Yeah, but now we arrive at the hooky dooky fun shit. Quote Occult legend states that whomever claims the spear and understands its occult significance holds the destiny of the world in their hands. According to Houston Stuart Chamberlain, a British born propagandist for anti Semitism and the German philosophy of the Aryan ras- master race, Ugh. cool guy, Ugh. this spear was claimed by Constantine the Great. Justinian, Charles Martel, Charlemagne, and various German emperors, all men of destiny, end quote. Which is where our favorite Disney villain Hitler comes in. According to the experts of Encyclopedia.com, quote, it attracted the attention of the young Adolf Hitler, who linked it with legends of the Holy Grail and made his own plans to be a man of destiny. The spear held a special fascination for young Hitler and his associates in the hothouse atmosphere of occultism and evil philosophies that gave rise to the Nazi plan for world domination, end quote. Yeah, it's not good. Mm, that's not great. No. This obsession with the occult, wielding spiritual strength, as well as corrupting religious idols to be used as tools to achieve their own ends, fueled and founded much of the Nazi Party's ideology and mythology that they created internally. It is rumored that after retrieving the spear from the Nuremberg bunker, the U.S. General George Patton acquired the weapon and regained control of the relic until the end of the war, which, spoiler warning, the U.S. came out on top of. The legend continues, evidently, saying that upon giving up the lance to the Austrians in December of 1945, General Patton was killed in a relatively minor car accident wherein he was the sole passenger to die, though all the other people riding with him sustained only minor injuries. Now the spear rests in an Austrian museum and is probably a fake. Okay, so like, why is it weird that he died in a car accident other than the way that he died? So he had just given the spear away. And the legend goes that whoever wields it controls the destiny of the world and that once they lose it, they will die. Okay, I missed the they will die when they lose it. Mm -hmm. Sitch. Okay, so it's like powerful and cursed. Yes. So it gives you power of some unknown nuclear level magnitude, and then when you give it away, it just murders you. Granted, um, you didn't miss the part about you'll die when you lose it. That wasn't in the original quote. I think that's just kind of like what people have read into it, because all these, you know, aggressive uh, emperors and imperialists that have wielded it have died violent deaths. They're just like, yeah, but that's kind of just kind of. They do seem like they're... Par for the course, if that's what your life is like. Yeah, they're in the business of the killings. And violent death, yeah. Yeah. So. Okay, is that it? So that's the Spear of Destiny. Okay. So, moving on to the next topic, the next weapon. This one is called the Sharu, spelled S-H-A-R-U-R. And the Sharu, translated as, quote, 
The Smashing of Thousands is a legendary mace wielded by the Sumerian god Ninurta, said to be able to fly across vast distances after being thrown by its wielder without impediment or concern for redirection. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like Thor's hammer. Yeah. Additionally, this mace can speak to its owner, giving advice and words of encouragement like a true bro might do. (laughs) This legendary mace is regarded by historians as a precursor and inspiration to numerous magical legendary weapons throughout history. Specifically, Arthurian tales of Excalibur, and in my mind, most closely related to Mjolnir, which is what you just touched on. Mjolnir doesn't give advice, though. Mm, maybe. It might it, speak softly. I mean, it denotes worthiness, right? So, like, and anyone wisdom. could pick it up. Who can pick it Not up wisdom. has to be worthy of the power of Thor, yeah? Yeah. So. But I believe that that is dictated by Odin. Well, yeah, he's the one that set up the challenge, yeah? Mm-hmm. So, of course, he would be the decider. As for the one that rocked this kick and sweet implement, Ninurta is an ancient Mesopotamian god associated with farming, healing, hunting, law, scribes, and war, who was first worshipped in early Sumer around 2000 BCE. Okay, I was wondering when we were going to get to the part where he needs a mace, and it was the last one. War. War. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what does we'll he also, need a mace we'll, for we'll all this get, shit? We're going to touch on that here in a second <laughs> as well. In the earliest records, he's a god of agriculture and healing, who cures humans of sicknesses and releases them from the power of demons. That sounds cool. In later times, as Mesopotamia grew more militarized, he became a warrior deity, though he retained many of his earlier agricultural attributes. Essentially, Ninurta went through something akin to a 90s radicalization and became more extreme, spelled with an X, and from here on out, he wielded a talking mace and fought demons. Okay, so he went to, he's a god of war, but his war is like a heavenly war where he's fighting like no, I'd demon say, stuff. If I'm going to make, if I'm going to paint with a wide conjecture heavy brush, I'm going to say this is a, associated with the time in which Ancient Mesopotamia went from a more matriarchal society to a patriarchal society, and they wanted to beef up this god and make him more aggressive. Yeah, maybe. As is written in the Lugal A, which I'm sorry I don't know how to pronounce ancient Sumerian, but it's spelled L-U-G-A-L-E. He is a, quote, hero striding formidably into battle. Lord, whose powerful arm is fit to bear the mace, reaping like barley the necks of the insubordinate. End quote. <laughs> the myth that brought Sharu to celebrity status in ancient Sumeria was the Lugal A, as previously mentioned, translated to Ninurta's exploits. In the tale, Ninurta comprises the role of the god of spring thunderstorms and floods. He's absolutely proto Thor. He's a thunderstorm god in this one. Okay. So, thunderstorm god. Agricultural god, mace-wielding guy. Yes. Law, scribes. Waste, mace that also just flies in any direction without impediment. Does it come back? Mm-hmm. In the tale of It'd the Lugal It'd be Lugale, funny if he threw it and it just landed. That would be absolutely hilarious. In this tale, get it. he goes to war with his mountainous <laughs> rival, the demon Asag. Asag was, and still is, considered to be a creature so horrifically hideous that to simply see him is to perish. It is said that the visage of Asag has the power to make fish boil alive in their rivers. What? Yes. So he looks at rivers and they boil? Translations get rough after 4,000 years, but it's just <laughs> something to the, to the nature of that. He boils rivers for fun. He's okay. so ugly that he makes fish boil. No, it, well, that's the thing. If you look at him, it'll make fish boil in rivers. 
But I feel like there's a, there's a bit of middle ground. I it's feel not like tread there. I'm imagining the like bad breath from SpongeBob, where it like shrivels things as you go by. Yes. Or like some sort of like pestilence. Any kind of wind. '90s belching cartoon character yeah, that something. killed anything in its path. Yeah. There's some imagery that'll reinforce that. The myth goes as follows: During a feast attended by the gods. Ninurta was passing down decisions and drinking his fill amongst the company of his divine peers when his mace began to speak. Lord of lofty station, foremost one who presides all over all lords from the throne dais, Ninurta, whose orders are unalterable, whose allotted face are faithfully executed, my master. Heaven copulated with the verdant earth, Ninurta, she has borne him a warrior who knows no fear, the Asag, a child who sucked the power of milk without ever stain with a wet nurse. A foster child. Oh, my master, knowing no father, a murderer from the mountains, a youth who has come forth from... This part has... It says translation pending. (laughs) So hopefully they get on that soon. It's been 4,000 years. I'm I'm hoping we come back to that. From them, a shark's tooth has grown up in the mountains. It has stripped the trees. Before its might, the gods of those cities bow towards it. My master, this same creature has erected a throne dais. It is not lying idle. And then from there on out, there's a lot more of Sharu just heaping praise and talking about how studly and absolutely bodacious Nanderda's biceps are. Did Before, he, um, does it say, like, how he found this maze? Where he initially was given it? I did not come across that in the lore. I will get back to you on that. Because, yeah, I'd like to know where he got it. Where did he get this talking mace? Did he find it in a cave? See, now you're did asking he find the it questions. in a hole? It may be his hole mace. Did he get hit with it in the stomach and then he stole it from the guy and murdered him? Sharer, being the mace, continues on saying, The besetting Asag is beyond all control. Its weight is too heavy. Rumors of its army, armies constantly arrive before ever its soldiers are seen. This thing's strength is massive. No weapon has been able to overturn it, Minerta. Neither the axe nor the all-powerful spear can penetrate its flesh. <laughs> no warrior like it has ever been created against you. You, Ninurta whose sick tan and rockin' nipples make all the world bow before thee. Whose you glory... always give it away when you're making something up. Sorry? You change your voice when you're doing your own jokes. I don't know. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> um, contemporary accounts of the battle between Inerta and Asag state that the demon's army was rendered from the stone of the very mountain itself. And then, harkening back to that earlier statement from the fable, I think this is possibly referring to the maze's statement that localities were decimated before ever seeing the demon's legion, mm. which I'm assuming is referring to rock slides, though I base that on nothing other than being a self-ordained champion of history. So you think that the army that they didn't end up seeing got hit by a bunch of rock slides? No, Mace was stating that Asog's demon army would always appear and ravage the people before they would even see them coming. And then in some contemporary translations of the story, they say that the demon's army was made from the stone of the mountain itself. I'm okay, so rock slide. A rock slide metaphor. Ninurta accepted the call to fight from his trusty mace and made off immediately for the mountains. As it was written 4,000 years ago, quote, The mace snarled at the mountains. The club began to devour all the enemy. He fitted the evil wind in the Sirocco. Which I looked it up. Sirocco is a very fun word, meaning a hot, dusty wind, specific to this area of Mesopotamia. Interesting. Kick ass, right? I'm surprised that never showed up in Dune. 
but to restate that whole sentence, he fitted the evil wind and the Sirocco on a pole and placed the quiver on its hook. I thought the Sirocco was the evil wind. Yeah, so it's doubly. He's like riding the wind on his hook pole. Okay. Translations. An enormous hurricane, irresistible, went before the hero, stirred up the dust, caused the dust to settle, leveled high and low, filled the holes. It caused a rain of coals and flaming fires. The fire consumed men. It overturned tall trees by their trunks, reducing the forest to heaps. Earth put her hands on her heart and cried harrowingly. Oh, said the earth. <laughs> During his raid upon the mountain peoples, an additional description of shower is given, quote, In his heart he beamed at his lion-headed weapon, as it flew up like a bird trampling the mountains for him, end quote. So he threw a mace and it went, it blew through mountains? Yeah, he and his mace are flying through mountains with a so, hurricane in front of them. That's interesting, because I thought it would fly without impediment. Does that mean that it destroys everything it flies Yeah, through? yeah, pretty much. <laughs> It's really nothing's gonna stop it, but it just blows through shit. No, that's no, you're not wrong. That's kind of what's coming here. Okay, Nanerda is strong, but he's not, he's not a tactical fighter, I would say. He's a little heavy handed. Mm -hmm. After successfully ravaging the entirety of the mountain's people's land with fire, poisonous clouds, and brute force destruction, Jesus, the mace once again called out to Nanerta, saying, But Lord, do not venture again to a battle as terrible as that. Do not lift your arm to the smiting of weapons, to the festival of the young men, to Inanna's dance. And Inanna, who, also known as Ishtar, was one of the most powerful and beloved deities in all of ancient Mesopotamia, and was the patron saints of sexual fornication and the most sensual of arts. That's just fun. Inanna got in here. We were going to do an Inanna story in the Persephone uh, and Demeter one. Any hoodle. Lord, do not gaze at such a great battle as this. Do not hurry. Fix your feet upon the ground, Inerta. The Asag is waiting for you in the mountains. Hero, who is so handsome in his crown, firstborn <laughs> son whom Nidlil has decorated with numberless charms, good lord, whom a princess bore to a priest of En, hero who wears horns like the moon, who is long life and the king of the land, who opens the sea. He is so... Dear, this reminds me of a Nightmare Before Christmas where the mayor is reading Jack's thing before he becomes, like, fake Santa, and he's like, May your sleigh strike fear in the hearts of those who tremble. Da, da. <laughs> you know? I don't know this character. In Number for Christmas? The mayor. Ah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it do be, it do be having that flavor. Ye who Sorry, are I was joy, totally derailed. Ye who are our glory. Okay. Where should I start? You can keep going wherever you were. Alright. You stop singing praises, so perhaps going after the praises occur. Yeah, there's still a few more praises here. <laughs> I'm going to skip over those. The last statement of which was, Ninerta, do not make your young men enter the mountains. Which, okay. First time there's ever been a reference to any kind of supporting army or caste here. I thought it was just Ninerta and Shaur, but now we come to the great battle of Ninerta and Asag, which truly and genuinely has some of the most incredible descriptive language and imagery that I've read in quite a while. Uh, Quote, so it's long? Mm, pfft, you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. The Asag leapt up at the head of the battle, 
For a club it uprooted the sky, took it in its hand, like a snake it slid its head along the ground. It was a mad dog attacking to kill the helpless, dripping with sweat on its flank. Like a dog collapsing, the Asog fell on Anerta, the son of Enlil. Like an accursed storm, it howled in a raucous voice. Like a gigantic snake, it roared at the land. It dried snakes up don't the. Roar. No, but like a hound, it does. It's like a hound snake. <laughs> like a giant snake, it roars. Yeah, like snakes a giant snake roar. hound. Yeah, I hear that. It dried up the waters of the mountains, dragged away the tamarisks, which are old world trees. Oh, trees. Tamarisks. Tore the flesh of the earth and covered her with painful wounds. Ooh. It set fire to the reed beds, bathed the sky in blood, turned it inside out, dispersed the people there. Fucking hardcore. At that moment, on that day, the fields became black scum. Across the whole extent of the horizon, reddish like purple dye. Truly it was so. On <laughs> was overwhelmed, crouched, wrung his hands against his stomach, and On is like the creator god, so this, this went all the way up the ladder in terms of stressing people out. Enlil groaned and hid himself in the corner. The Anuna flattened themselves against the walls. The house was full of fearful sighing, as of pigeons. <laughs> so yeah, that, that, the end of that gets sighing really weird. So pigeons? it's like, this Ooh. fight is so <laughs> atrocious and resounding that it's scaring even the highest gods of the pantheon, which they describe as like the whole house was concerned. And then it, it undercuts this crazy paragraph of descriptive language with, they were frightened like pigeons. They could. They made noise like frightened pigeons, right? The fearful sign, as a fearful, yeah. which also fearful I sign. feel like is not on par with the level of destruction that you're seeing. I don't know. Mm-hmm. If someone turned the sky inside out and deposited all of the people there in the void, the forever void, and someone was just like, oh, <laughs> the I feel like that's void. inadequate. Go, oh, oh, oh. I feel like that's a pigeon <laughs> cooing noise. I'm snoring because of my allergies. Yeah, fest. <laughs> At this stage in the story, Ninurta is overcome by the ferocity of a sog. Yet, in the nick of time, their trusty mace returns to them with sage advice on how to fell the fearsome demon. Mm-hmm. My master, as the Ninurta bef- before whom the venom has piled up attacks the enemy, let him take the Asog by the shoulder. Let him pierce its liver. Let my son enter into it with the Ikur. Then, Ninurta, to limits of the people of the earth, my people will deservedly praise your power. You, Lord who trusts in the words of his father, do not tarry, great strength of Enlil. Storm of the rebel lands, who grinds the mountains like flour. Stop, stop complimenting so, uh, me constantly. Do not tarry, my master. The Asag has constructed a wall of stakes on an earthen rampart. The forest is too high and he cannot be reached. Its fierceness does not diminish. What were you asking? Does the base have a son? No, he's talking to Nerta. The son of Enlil. Okay. <laughs> Heeding the weapon's word, Nanuta let loose his special attack. He held R2 and pressed X. And, quote, made the storm wind rise to heaven, scattering the people. What's it, the attack's name? Cyclone Burst. Rhapsody of the Night. So, yeah, you gotta say that before you attack, like in a show. Well, this isn't a shonen, that is. It's Sumerian. That's what you gotta do. He quote, made the storm wind rise to heaven, scattering the people. Its spittle alone destroyed the townspeople. Once again, this is his own, this is his attack. And he's just killing everyone in the the wake of it. 
The destructive mace set fire to the mountains. The murderous weapon smashed skulls with its painful teeth. The club, which tears out entrails, piled up noses. The lance was struck into the ground and the crevices filled with blood. In the rebel lands, dogs licked it up like milk. The enemy rose up, crying to wife and child. You do not lift your arms in prayer to Lord Inerta. The weapon covered the mountains with dust, but did not shake the heart of the Asag. Like a bird of prey, the Asag looked up angrily from the mountains. He commanded the rebel lands to be silent, and Inerta approached the enemy and flattened him like a wave. The Asag's terrifying splendor was contained. It began to fade. It began to fade. It looked wonderingly upwards. Like water, he agitated. He scattered it into the mountains. Like aspartograss, he paddled up. Like aspartograss, he ripped it up. Inerta's splendor covered the land. He pounded the Asag like roasted barley. He, unclear translation, its genitals. <laughs> That's my favorite part of this whole fucking sale. Unclear translation to its genitals. He, unclear translation, its genitals. He piled it up like a heap of broken bricks. He heaped it up like flour, as a potter does with coals. He piled it up like stamped earth whose mud has been dredged. The hero had achieved his heart's desire. Ninurta, the lord, the son of Enlil, began to calm down. That's how it ends. He just starts calming down after he pretty much nukes Mesopotamia in his urge to just get one demon, whom his mace may not be, or may or may not be an imaginary friend, told him to go kill. So countless thousands were killed in this process, in that some sense kind of, of the, the forever thing. void. The thing with gods is that mortals are the chessboard, so yeah. it doesn't really matter how many die to do whatever they're doing. And specifically in uh, Sumerian mythology, humans were created by their trickster gods so that gods wouldn't have to work anymore. Yeah. They were created out of mud to tend the fields so they could just relax and do god shit. Yeah, that's who that's I think was like this guy's thing. uncle because his father is Enlil, but Enki was the brother of it. Yeah, anyway, he's related to some shithead. That kind of reminds me of the the Fopulu because, like, yeah, they were just like the gods, god creatures were all existing, and they're like, there's no one to worship us, so then they made people. Yeah, it's a relatable desire. <laughs> there's no one to worship me, <laughs> to make, pe- make people so that they do your work. <laughs> I feel like that's why most people exist. <laughs> I don't know. I like. I was thinking of like a washing machine when you said that make people to work this, but instead you just make a washing machine. I think a lot of pe- people throughout history have viewed their children as washing machines. <laughs> <laughs> you know how bad I am at washing my clothes with a washing machine. Yeah. Can you imagine how bad it would be if I had to wash it by hand? Oh, horror. But then you'd be like, well, I can make it have five kids. <laughs> Maybe they will do it. I wouldn't be a good example. For you would be. But you also don't have to wash it by hand. So as good as this conversation is, let's move on to our third and final <laughs> legendary weapon story. But this one actually is a cursed weapon. Oh, a cursed weapon. And it's Yay, multiple cursed curse. weapons. These are the cursed blades of Muramasa Sengo. Ooh. Are you intrigued? Cursed blades. Do <laughs> tell. I shall. Muramasa is a name synonymous with the height of swordsmithing in feudal Japan. The founder of a school which bore his name for three generations. It was said that Muramasa's blades were the favored weapons of the man who forged Japan into the country we know it as to this day. Tokugawa Ayasa, the first shogun of the Edo period and founder of Tokyo. Interesting. 
Adding to the legend is the historical ambiguity of Muramasa himself, with theories and questions spanning most details of his life, such as where he was born and raised, who mentored him and taught him his craft, and when exactly he created his work. Though it is generally accepted that most of all of this shit and the man himself lived at the beginning of the 16th century when Tokugawa Iyasu came to power. Cool. Which is the little teaser, the end of the story of a character known as Yasuke, who will probably be getting his own episode here in the future. Yasuke is going to take some time. Yeah. As t- Yasuke, isn't it? Yasuke. Yeah. Derived from Isaac. Is how they pronounced Isaac, that it became Yasuke. As time went on, however, the swords of Muramasa began to become associated with anti-Tokugawa sentiment and were seen as potent symbols of a challenge to the new shogun's reign, and thus became widely known as Yoto, meaning wicked katana. That's cool. This next part comes from Yamamoto Magazine. The Tokugawa clan were responsible for spreading the demonic rumors that became associated with Muramasa katanas. Iyasu's grandfather, Matsudaira Kiyoyasu was killed by his own vassal, Abe Masatoyo, with a Muramasa blade. Ooh. While Iyasu's father, Matsudaira Hirotada, was stabbed by a similar blade, also made by The shogun's first son, Matsudaira Nobuyasu, also came to a violent end when he was beheaded by a Muramasa in an act of seppuku. Now, there's a little additional thing here that wasn't... And how did he behead for seppuku? Because it was supposed to be sort of like a inner guts sort of situation. Well, if you have a spotter when you're performing seppuku, which most nobles would, you would take your blade, your smaller katana, and cut your chest open from left to right, and then someone standing behind you would take your head off, or with a cut that was supposed to leave just a small amount of flesh at the front, that your head wouldn't bounce away in an undignified manner, but hang or in order to be cut and then taken where it needed to go. So it's possible that the, the spotter was using a Muramasa. Gross. Okay. Sounds good. You answered my question really thoroughly. I sure did. You didn't think I had an answer for you there, did you? I didn't know, actually. It just occurred to me. An additional detail regarding this part of the legend that I came across while researching this was that evidently the final straw before Tokugawa Yasu completely put the kibosh on the manufacture and promulgation of the blades was he was doing something kind of innocuous and cut himself extremely badly with a Muramasa. The so, stupid cursed blade and yeah, throws exactly. it across the yeah. room. It just kind of, and once he realized it was a Muramasa, he was not pleased. Yeah, these blades are beautiful. I spent a bunch of time looking at them and what, and what really defined them and made them unique. And it was, it's some really interesting shit. I don't know if we want to get into the makeup of the blades, but I don't know. How long is it? Yeah, we'll just skip it. They look like swords, right? They're swords. Hey, they're, they're much more than swords, goddammit. <laughs> they look like Japanese swords, so they don't have the hilt, like Western swords. So after these familial incidents, the legend of the cursed blades of Muramasa began to grow, and rumors spread that to carry one of his swords would cause bloodlust and a frenzied ap- appetite for the spilling of blood in even the most timid of warriors. Hmm. Historians Oscar Ratty and Adele Westbrook say that Muramasa, quote, was a most skillful smith, but possessed a violent and ill-balanced mind, verging on madness. 
that was supposed to have passed into his blades. They were popularly believed to hunger for blood and to impel the warrior that wielded them to commit murder or suicide. Interesting. Once again from Yamamoto Magazine, quote, The Tokugawa clan's damnation of Muramasa contributed to his negative image. The shogun feared his sword so much that he banned anyone from owning them. Anyone who was found to be keeping them suffered harsh punishments. For example, a Nagasaki magistrate called Takanak Ume was ordered to kill himself after he was discovered to own 24 Muramasa blades. It's an ancient Japanese gun hoarder. (laughs) He lived in the Texas of Japan at the time. How do you know it was the Texas of Japan? I'm making this up. Oh. So, in March of 2019, a sword collector not far from here in Vernon, British Columbia, found himself a saucy little morsel of good fortune when he discovered a genuine Muramasa Arch. at a garage sale. <laughs> They're considered to be some of the most rare artifacts on the planet when it comes to weaponry. How did he know that it was that? He got it uh, from the article in the Coastal Town Times. Quote, he said he purchased the sword from the granddaughter of General Jonathan M. Wainwright, who had been rumored to have gained possession of the sword after... Tomoyuki Yamashita, a Japanese general of the Imperial Japanese Army during World War II, was forced to surrender it. The woman the collector said he bought it from had not yet had it authenticated at the time, but when he purchased it and found it interesting, he wanted to do check to make sure that it was the real deal. Once in his possession, he sent it to a Japanese sword society for proof of authenticity. And to end this quote, it's real and it belongs in a museum, says the man. Put it in a museum. Is it in a museum? No, I think you kept it. Oh, that bitch. I, I mean, understand I don't know. where it is with people. Like, That's... hey, I, I should take this extremely valuable historical monument and not give it to a museum. I'm just going to throw it in my house. Yeah, just the likelihood of anyone, let alone an actual sword collector at a garage sale, finding one of these swords is astronomically unlikely. Because <laughs> during the, once they became out of favor, and then once they became associated with anti-Tokugawa sentiment, they were just destroyed. Everywhere they were found, they were either melted down or had, at best, the signature of Muramasa scratched and grinded off the hilt so that you could never even identify them for certain these days. So the fact that this guy found one is wild. And the fact that, he, I mean, he's probably gone on and killed a bunch of people, you know, because of the curse. Now that he's in possession of a cursed Muramasa blade. So is this just some random guy, or was he like an ancient sword collector? It was just some random guy with a penchant for sword collecting, I think. Hmm. I guess it'd be pretty cool to have in a collection. I just feel like. It is. It does belong in a museum. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe he did think, give it away. I'm not saying he had to donate it. Like, fucking have him buy it off you, but like, <laughs> put it in the museum. I, don't know. I mean, <laughs> probably be best for it to go back to Japan. Wasn't it in Japan? No, it was like I said, it was in Vernon, British Columbia. Oh, this person that. that got it got it from their grandfather who was in World War II and got it uh, from an Imperial Japanese general who was forced to surrender it. Gotcha, gotcha. I remember that part. I just thought it was still in Japan because that's what made sense. Okay. No, it's in, it's just across the border in Canada from us. <laughs> you can see Canada from our house. <laughs> that's what she said, yeah. <laughs> That actually would have made sense, though. That seems like in all likelihood possible. Yeah. So what do you I think? I wonder if who else is going to remember that quote from way back in the day, in the before times. Before, before, it's before not even times. that long ago. But 
Sarah Palin, though? That's so long ago. I mean... That was when the world felt joyful when we were talking about politicians like that, where we're like, they're not going to get elected. I, I don't know if we want to get into this conversation right now. I don't know about joyful. That's scary as shit. She was a proto-Trump. She wasn't a proto-Trump. She yeah, was. she was. Oh, we'll get into this off air. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah, that's fair. Okay, How'd you so, enjoy it? Oh, actually, I liked all your hidden tidbits. I kind of wish there was more cursed death stories associated with the samurai swords. Yeah, there have been a lot in popular culture. There was a no play based on them. Oh, cool. Yeah. I really want to see one of those one day. Yeah, we should try to see one next year. When we're there. Also, did you know that? Yeah. Do you know that Edo period Japan? Edo is the original name of Tokyo? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that until today. Really? Yeah, I learned that in a podcast today. Oh, yeah. That's like the original name of the area of Tokyo was Edo. And then they they kind of like named that whole historical period after it. And then. Well, yeah, because that's where uh, Tokugawa Yasuo established his capital, created Tokyo, but I didn't know it was Edo during his time. Yeah, and then it became a, a rival to capital. Kyoto. Yeah. Because they saw the puppet emperor living there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anywho, it'll be. That was it. But like I said, there's a fuck ton more of interesting, legendary, and cursed weapons that I would like to get into. Just... You could do it. Why don't you do a part two of weapons? Yeah. And All you right. could throw some some ghostly stories in there. All right. You know Spectral I love nunchucks. Ghosts. Ghosts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some hellacious halberds. Okay, so if Spooky you have some spears. cool cursed weapon stories, you can send those in to ADDStorytellr at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at ADDStorytellingPodcast. Tucker runs that one, so he'll be responding to you with his silliness and humor. Run it with iron fist. Yeah. Um, whereas I handle all the other stuff. <laughs> I have the email, so you'll most likely hear from me if you email in. I don't know if you have a favorite after this time between me or Tucker, but we're we're a team unit, so we, we communicate anyway. <laughs> I actually have my people communicate on my behalf. I dictate, and they do it. <laughs> what people? My people, my team. Yeah, your big team? Mm-hmm. For our, like, high-budget podcast production that we do on GarageBand? It's for a lot of my other adventures, but yeah. Oh, I see. They all, they all leak in. <laughs> Well, yeah, thank you, Tucker, buddy. for some interesting stories. I hope you found them engaging. I noticed you yawned less today, so that's a good sign. I don't think I yawned once. You did twice. Really? Okay, you were gotcha. I just was thinking that, like, the joke is old at this point, so <laughs> I didn't point it out. You know, usually I'm yawning because I'm like, I don't know, I work pretty hard. Yeah. As a teacher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I get tired. Indeed. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us. We'll see you all again next week. Thanks for joining we... us for Tuckered Out. Yeah, I hope you're not too sleepy on your daytime commute. After keeping it here real with ADD Storytelling Podcast on KWY 98.7. Coming up, we've got a solid rock block of Sugar Ray. Take care, everybody. <laughs> Bye, everyone.